Desperado Sitting in a whole Monte Carlo A man is hot as hollow uh-huh. Take it easy I'm not trying to go against it Actually, I'm going with you Gotta get up out of here and you and leave me behind I know you won't cause we share common interests You need me there, ain't no leaving me behind Never, no, no, just one out of here, yeah Cause I'm gone, ain't no going back If you won't, we could be the runaway Running from in the saddle of And that is my jam! Welcome to Mind Black History Boot Camp That is Desperado by the one and only Rihanna. And she is perfect today as we talk about the one and only Josephine Baker. We are the daughters of Josephine Baker, and she was most definitely a cosmonaut. She was an airbender, a culture maker, a shapeshifter. She was amazing, Vanessa. There's so many things. I have so many questions. How you doing, girl? Let's start there. I'm doing great. I just walked past this really beautiful church, and the church bell started ringing right at 12 o'clock. So it was really nice. It was ringing everywhere. I'm doing great walking outside. And I'm actually walking under, I think they're called banyan trees, but literally it's a street with maybe like a half of mile of banyan trees. And on each side of the street, the trees have now converged to make a canopy. It feels magical. And we're talking about Josephine Baker, so I'm doing amazing. And you got that next car phone. I've seen you in that Zoom today. Look, girl, walk that runway. In honor you of walk Josephine like you the daughter. Baker, y'all. Yes. Okay, yes. I put on a next scarf. I put on a little French dress. I did my little makeup. I was like, I got to get out here. I'm inspired by this entire series and all of the women, men, allies who show up for themselves every day at noon. And I was like, I want to show up for myself. Well, I'm wearing that T-shirt you bought me that says pineapple juice, yoni eggs, kegels, <laughs> and good juices. <laughs> Well, listen, y'all, welcome to Black History Bootcamp. My name is Morgan Dixon. The other voice you will hear today is Vanessa Garrison. She's my friend of many, many, many years. We went to call together in L.A. We have started a fantastic movement called Girl Trek, which is nothing without the organizers on the ground to invite their friends and family. Vanessa, I just saw Hashisa got her mom to do her first walk yesterday during boot camp. I was like, that's the best post I've ever seen on Facebook. Hashisa is one of our college friends. And you know your friends who be supporting your wild ideas? Those are the friends you want to keep around. That's Hashisa. And not only has she been such a support, she's vegan. She's a personal inspiration to me, the way she be looking at her cute family. And now she got her mom walking with her. And I was like, if that ain't a testimony, let me shout today. I was just so happy yes. to see that. I meant to tell you that. Oh, so I love that. To see that. Me too, me too. So we got a lot to talk about. I have a lot of questions that I'm hoping that you and The email was good. The email was good, by the way. It came through. I'm so glad that we're going to tell this story in the way that it deserves to be told. Because so many people, when they think of Josephine Baker, just think of the banana skirts and her dancing topless and her being an entertainer and don't understand the ways in which she moved in silence almost as a G, setting us up for success years later. And they really trailblazing her. Yeah. Even with her topless banana skirt dance, let's get that out the way. That was even a choice. That was even a choice in the middle of the Harlem Renaissance where she got an opportunity to perform and they wanted her to go topless, which was exploitative and objectifying. And she knew it. 
and she made the choice. Woo! Okay, let's start from the beginning. Yes. First of all, I drove to my magic place again today, and on the radio, they was having a heated conversation about whether you're willing to compromise your happiness for a supportive relationship. Are you willing to compromise your happiness for a supportive relationship? And then they got all heated, and then they was like, are you willing to compromise your happiness for status or for justice? Or for, mm-hmm. and they just named a whole bunch of things. Like, what are you actually willing to compromise your happiness for? And I was like, God, I hear you. Because if I had to write a thesis about Josephine Baker, the thesis would be she was unwilling to compromise her happiness for anything. And that to me is a sermon <laughs> because yeah. I don't know that I can say the same, Vanessa. Like, I Black Lives Matter, put me out there. You know what I mean? Like, put me out there <laughs> yes. on the front line. You know, like somebody want to buy me a house with a swimming pool? Okay, I can make some concessions. I'm saying, like, I don't have that kind of fortitude that I'm so deeply inspired by her. So let us start from the beginning. I want to even say, Morgan, when you were just saying that, I have to say this even to put it in context for people. A lot of people know I just got recently divorced. I was with a man who I loved actually for almost 17 or 18 years. But every day I genuinely was compromising my happiness in return for what I thought was safety and security in ways that I didn't have growing up and needed. And so... I'm putting that out there for everyone as we enter into this conversation that we can even challenge ourselves around the ways in which we may not realize that we're making moves that don't necessarily serve us, but have to or feel like we have to. No, here, here. And I had a slightly different situation where I was married to my best friend. I wanted pineapple juice, yoni egg, kegel. Yeah. I wanted that other stuff. And that was the hardest decision of my life going from this safe harbor. My friend was yeah. telling me that sometimes you got to get into the deep. Sometimes you got to get into the deep. And so sometimes you got to about... move into that one bedroom apartment, y'all. Just give it all up. Yeah. <laughs> you can start over. <laughs> and so, okay, let me it. just say, because I don't be advocating for divorce. It's a big old, hard, messy thing. Sometimes, yeah. too, you have to carve out happiness wherever you are. You have to demand it, insist on it. And that's what she was so good at. She bothered so many people, Vanessa, because she was insistent and non-negotiating about her happiness. And it started mm-hmm. when she was 14, 15 years old. St. Louis, 1917, was one of the most murderous race riots in American history. Researchers believe that up to 250 men, mostly black men, but black people, were murdered in the streets of St. Louis in 1917. Well, Josephine Baker was there. Josephine Baker's home and community got burned down, and people she knew were shot dead in the streets by an angry white mom. This was the beginning of what became a red summer of hate later on in 1990. I mean, it was tumultuous, not unlike it is today. And she was forever scarred by the fear of dying. And what most people don't understand about Josephine Baker is that when she eventually left and went to France, which we'll get to, she always felt like a refugee. She felt like she was afraid of America and traumatized by America in this way that most people don't talk about. We're so resilient and most of us don't talk about those direct experiences and trauma, even the indirect ones by watching on TV, right? So this was the beginning of her story, but actually her story started two years before that. Josephine Baker was married four times and in several other long-term partnerships, so with five, six significant others. But her first marriage started when she was 13, 
Vanessa, 13. She got divorced in like a year. And then her second marriage was when she was 15. And this is around the time when the riot happened. And she left to go to Harlem because it was popping off in Harlem. And her mother, which would be a dynamic that I told you we would talk about, her mother was like, do not leave this good man. He got a job on the railroad. <laughs> do not leave this right. good man. She actually got her Baker name from her second marriage at 15. His name was Willie Baker. She was like, do not leave this man. I'm trying to give grace to mothers, to Black mothers who have their own trauma. I'm trying to give so much grace. And so I was doing some research and Josephine Baker's son published a book in the mid-90s, 1995, I think. And he was like, of all the things I was able to uncover about my mother, and there were so many things, her adopted son, we'll talk about that too. So many things I was able to uncover about my mother. The one thing I couldn't uncover was the identity of her father. Everyone in St. Louis believed it to be this really hardworking man, right, who was in like the music industry or something, this really stand-up Black man. But everybody also knew that she was fair-complected and that there were rumors that her mother, when she was working for a German family, got pregnant by the father of that household. I don't know what got pregnant means, but at the very least... We know that if that's the truth, that he didn't take ownership of his responsibilities, of his child, whatever. At the very worst, it was completely exploitative sexually, right? And maybe even rape, right? We know what that dynamic was when you're working for a man who then impregnates you. It's the story of Black women in America. And so I can't even imagine that mother trying to forge a relationship with Josephine in that context. Do you understand what I mean? It happened to so many women. So many women. Right, yes. It really did. Yeah. So that is the context in which she was growing up and had this relationship with her mom. And so when her mom saw her with this Willie Baker, she was like, stop playing. You won the lottery. Stick with it. She left anyway. And that caused a lifelong kind of friction between her and her mom. At 15, 16, she moved to Harlem and she became a chorus girl in Harlem. And already she was a star, Vanessa, because her face was different. Josephine Baker's, and many thought she was unattractive. She had really large eyes, and people thought she was unattractive. And her body was actually different. She was slimmer. She wasn't like as curvy as the other girls, but she made it onto the course line of some of the most prominent shows in Harlem. And on the course line, it was kind of tradition where one girl would stand on the end, it would be kind of the comic relief, right? Everybody else would be sexy, and she'd be over there like knocking her knees together. That was Josephine Baker. And she became so famous, she was cracking the audience up. She was a comedian. She became so famous that she was like the highest course girl in Harlem, right? Or maybe America something. But she just like flipped that situation for her and people love to laugh. And so she became fast friends with so many people in Harlem and half of them at the time were going over to Europe, the jazz musicians going over to Europe in order to perform because we were treated better in Europe. So that was the beginning of a love affair that Josephine Baker had with the city of Paris. France. So she went to Paris and Vanessa, she describes this kind of letting go. She describes this dancing in the streets. She describes this being seen for who she is beyond her blackness of experiencing this kind of freedom. And let me tell y'all listening on the phone, if you've never experienced the ability to be you, the ability to be a woman outside of the heavy laden of blackness, you've got to experience it. From underneath the glare of white America and how they interpret us. So to break and out of this country us. and go yeah. and how they interpret us. And any of us who've called in, who've had the opportunity, and it's a privilege if you're Black, to grab a passport and go anywhere else. 
anywhere else. France is full of racist folks, including Paris. So it's not that racism doesn't exist, but it's that outside of this confines of this country that literally only has known us and seen us for our labor and exploitative ways to be able to seek that freedom somewhere else. It is unlike anything else. And let's complicate that narrative while we're at it, right? So even the gaze of white men in Paris was completely objectifying. And I read this article that essentially what was happening in the 1920s is that, you know, all roads lead back to colonization for me, right? So Africa was being colonized and France was colonizing a lot of African countries. Every African country where they speak French, like Cote d'Ivoire, like Togo, any African country where they speak French, that means France colonized them, right? And so France was colonizing Africans and they were getting rich. And rather than subjugating them the same way that, say, Britain did, France celebrated them as the exotic, that there's these happy, beautiful, bouncing breasted black women over there that you can have, consume, possess kind of thing. And Josephine Baker got that glare from them. She was a live action figure of all of the statues they had pillaged from the Ivory Coast. You understand what I mean? She came alive on stage for them. So their glare was no less problematic, but she said under their glare for the first time, she felt beautiful. She felt appreciated. And that's complicated. That's complicated, Vanessa. I mean, her next three husbands would be white men. That's complicated. But boys feeling seen and beautiful and feminine, It's also something women deserve. I was really torn by like this whole dynamic. And that was a lot of the criticism that she got in Harlem from people that she was kind of subjecting herself to native, savage iconography, right? And she's saying, no, 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 no. I am playing this role so that people can see, in fact, women in Africa are the most beautiful specimens on the entire planet, that they're right, that they're right, and that I can feel it in my bones and I can feel it through. And so her comedy, her unique beauty, her charisma, her fear that was fueling her, she said, I would not go back to America. No matter what happened, I couldn't go back there. So she had to make it work, made her literally, Vanessa, the most famous woman in the world at that time. She was the highest paid black woman of her era. She was the first bona fide superstar. She was the first black woman to be in motion pictures. She was the most photographed black woman in the world. And in fact, she set trends through the fashion industry. White French women were spray painting their face, essentially blackface, in copper tones and shellacking her hair. Oh, you mean like now, Morgan? I want to put a flag in right now that in fact, right now, as we've seen from the Kardashians to other people that we could name that the same dynamic continues to happen. And then even still, with that level of fame, with that level of notoriety and worthiness that she was starting to feel, she came back to America and they called her a bucktooth wench, a bucktooth Negro wench in Time magazine. Somebody, hashtag Time magazine. (laughs) They called her a Tell them we want an apology. We want a formal apology to Josephine Baker. And the reason they called her that is because on her first trip back, she didn't come to America for a long time. On her first trip back to America, she was set up to headline, you know that theater in New York where all the showgirls and kit girls were? I can't remember the name of the theater. It's a famous theater in New York City. She was the first black woman to headline there and it closed down after. So she was the only black woman to have her own show there. It went terribly wrong. First of all, America's racist. <laughs> Just put that out there. Second, She didn't have the sound system. 
sound check. She went out and found something that she needed. And people started walking out. And she was also doing this kind of performance that didn't resonate with American crowds, particularly mostly white American crowds, which is the people who came out. And so she got scathing reviews, scathing reviews. America was still segregated, so she couldn't stay in hotels. She couldn't stay anywhere. And she charged people publicly. She even did a citizen's arrest one time when somebody tried to kick her out of a hotel. She was like, I'm doing a citizen's arrest against this racist white man right here. I mean, she was such a bad woman. I'm going to tell you, she's a bad woman. So fast forward, all of that, Harlem wrapped their arms around her. She was like the darling of Harlem. In fact, NAACP itself was starting to cultivate and hone her charisma, her skills, her intelligence for the civil rights movement. Even back then, the first person that they nominated for like a day of honor was Josephine Baker. And eventually she would be the only black woman to speak at the March on Washington. Daisy Bates was there, but she read some poem or something that a man wrote. And so Josephine Baker was the only one to do her own speech and to speak on the March on Washington. <laughs> it was all men in Josephine Baker. And Coretta Scott King, actually, when Dr. King was assassinated, really, really, really tried to position Josephine Baker as the next great leader of the civil rights movement. She was that Wow, adamant. I didn't know that about yeah, she was that adamant. She was like a thorn in America's side because she was so famous. Yeah. She reminds me a lot, actually, of Rihanna because Rihanna now is moving into activism or like Gaga or somebody, right? People love these superstars so much that the moment they turn political, it's really dangerous for the establishment. It's really dangerous. So Josephine Baker yeah. was that. So she had all kind of records on her. People tried to call her a communist, all sorts of things. But let's back up, okay? So when she was in France, she returned to France. She still hated America. She actually denounced her American citizenship when she was treated so poorly. And when the audiences were still segregated, she was like, I don't need this. I denounced my citizenship here. She was strong. She was a strong woman. She went back to France, Vanessa. And we're going back to in the early 30s. World War II was starting. And she was one of the first notable people to join the resistance on behalf of France. She was a French citizen then. She joined the resistance. And not only did she join the resistance, but she used her celebrity to smuggle secrets, to act as a spy for the state, to get soldiers across yes. borders. They pretended to be in her band. She took secret documents in her sheets of music. She charmed German officers with her like little slinky dresses on. Hitler's Gestapo raided her castle. She had a castle in France. They raided her castle. It was so dangerous for her that at one point, the state had to release a statement that she died in order to get her out of, I think she was in Eastern Europe somewhere, in order to get her out, oh no, she was in Northern Africa, to get her out safely. So there was a whole rumor that she died because she was the most wanted person in the resistance. She was so powerful. Josephine Baker received the highest military honor in the French government. That's like the Purple Heart in America. Nobody gets it. And she received a state 21-gun salute at her funeral. Yeah. And even when she went on the march on Washington, she was wearing her French resistance outfit. <laughs> like, oh, it's like, don't see that. Okay, her girl shirt. It was Yes. Yes. So I was deeply, deeply moved by this woman's story. First of all, I want to know if you had any reactions, anything to add, any thoughts. And then I have so many questions. My reactions are this. 
this is why it's just important for us to tell this story. That's really my reaction. And I'm also almost not joking about Time Magazine needing to release a public apology. We need to start to create on record and put into record the truth. And we're starting that with this podcast and certainly with all of the people who are walking with us. But I'm thinking of all the people who are continuing to misinterpret her story, continuing to use it as a propaganda against even Black folks, continuing to misinterpret. I'm just grateful that we're out here and that we're talking about her in this way because her legacy is too important and what she did is too important. And the lessons that we even have to learn from her not listening to her mother and not staying with that man to her denouncing her citizenship in America and saying, this is not for me and taking the risk and moving. Those are the lessons individually that I'm leaning into right now. Yeah. And let's actually talk about her dancing. I included a documentary, which the people were so eloquent in that documentary. And one of the cases they made was so profound that how her body moved almost without bone structure. If you ever seen her do like the wobbly leg dance or like essentially she invented the body roll. And she I was getting ready like to say, yeah. Cartwheel. Yeah, she's amazing. And it was like her body was fluid. And they were saying that she like possessed her body. She owned it in a way that like did not contort into anything people even recognized as beauty. So she even shaped our very definition of what was beautiful and sexy in that when she's wearing this banana skirt and she's gyrating, one interpretation of that is this whole notion of the masculine and feminine, that all of these banana skirts were phallic. And that as she's rolling and creating her own pleasure on stage that she's teaching this colonial world how to desire, how to desire, how to perform, how to show up, how to be now. And that's a lesson for all of us, how to be in our bodies fully. Well, and I'm assuming any, any woman... And I'm assuming any woman on here who's did any kind of sacral chakra work, who's moved their hips just to get your own self out of a stuck place, who understands even the power of movement and healing energy, she's yeah. teaching us ancient. She's teaching us ancient yeah. traditions. And those are the traditions, by the way, that were snatched from us, that were stolen from us as we came here to the United States and our bodies actually were used for backbreaking labor. And so for us to actually reclaim and embody and get into ourselves in that way is a tool against oppression. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So Girl Trek, first of all, if you're new to Girl Trek and you're not getting the stories, go to blackhistorybootcamp.com and sign up. Be counted one in a million black women who are walking in the direction of their healthiest, most fulfilled life. One of the programs that Girl Trek did over the last couple of years is we did something called Diaspora Trek. So we were taking many of our organizers to really learn the ways of our foremothers in different diasporic countries. And I remember when Cass was bringing people to Ghana and there was the opening kind of naming ceremony. And these men were dancing, Vanessa, and they had on women's skirts. There was something about the marrying of genders that was divine. That was divine. And I mean, these men were all <laughs> they came out going out to the drums and the drums, and then they had these skirts and they would like shake them. And I was like, this is fine. I was like, it's like, I it is, right? I, I, like like that too. I, I like it too. I like it too. So <laughs> I like it too. I like it. Even ancient in that, in marrying, in the claiming of the fullness of who you are and your sexuality. We're so compartmentalized, America. You have to be this, or you have to be that, you have to be this. And in fact, Josephine Baker is rumored, I don't know if you saw the Freak Hollow movie. 
So she was flirting and running through and it alluded to a sexual relationship that she had with this beautiful black woman. That was supposed to be Josephine Baker. I mean, she was living her life. You know what I mean? She was living her life. I'm just deeply inspired by that, first of all. But the thing I wanted to talk to you about is this notion of pleasure activism, right? That she was purposely displaying her joy, that she was purposely displaying her pleasure at a time that was the height of Jim Crow, was the Great Depression, the actual World War II. People were struggling, and here this woman comes with laughter, joy, flirting, batting her eyes in this way that is converting hardship into magic. And some people think she went over the top. She had, like, exotic animals and fur coats and all sorts of glitter. I'm wondering, Vanessa, how does that show up now? How does your activism show up now in your life? Is it valid? Is it disrespectful? I really do struggle with this one. It's the reason we don't put our vacations up on Facebook or Instagram or anything when the revolution is happening. So how do we hold first in both of these things? No, it's real. First things first, there's no way she could even be over the top. That notion of over the top has been used to suppress Black women for forever. I've been in South Florida for maybe a month or so. It's especially evident here, but you can see it, say, like within the hip hop culture. When young Black girls are showing up like Young Miami, when they're like Big Lotto, that's the same kind of, oh, they're doing the most with their lace front wigs, with their little shorts, with their dialect. That is us actually resisting the smallness by which people can't define it. It's still happening even today. So I say there is no such thing as doing the most. Wear your fur coat, wear your sequins, wear your lace front wig, wear it all at the same time if you feel like it. We are an expressive people. (laughs) And Black women are expressive. And I'm actually tired and rejecting and resisting this idea. I'm going to get us some t-shirts, y'all, that say queens of doing the most. And we're going to make them sparkly and bedazzled. And we're going to just show up and make them little crop tops, too. And we're going to just be like queens of doing the most in honor of Josephine Baker. Right. And then we're going to get young Miami and City Girls to make the theme song. And then we're going to all be after body rolling. That's the level of activism by which I want to see us. And this is me talking even to black women of my age. I'm in my 40s and older. Even when we see young black girls today moving and acting in ways that I think some of us might say, "Mm," like what they're doing, like. No, just remember that is resistance and recall and remember the environment, the violence by which black girls are showing up to school, walking down the street, not being celebrated and let us not be a part of that machine. We need to be celebrating them as well. And we need to be asking ourselves, when did we start to reject that freedom for ourselves? When did we start to move into the bindingness of not being free? And we need to ask ourselves about our own judgment of the young Black girls that we have right now, because they are the young Josephine Bakers of tomorrow. And we're going to be telling their stories in some way that we don't even understand. And especially in this country, where pleasure is tied to capitalism, and where everything costs a dollar more than what we have as Black folks, We have to actually create pleasure in place. And that pleasure has to come oftentimes from a food stamp, right? Or from a dollar that we flipped into 15 cents when we're out there making our own outfits in our home and figuring stuff out. Uh, I love the idea of pleasure activism, and I want to use it as a tool against respectability politics to say that we need the permission and need to give each other the permission to show up in that doing the most space. Well, let's talk about respectability politics, because in that circle of civil rights activists, you can imagine how them people, the Southern Christian Leadership Council, was like, "Mm, mm, mm, mm." but also on the other side of things, her homies. I mean, she coming up speaking French and they like, "Mm, you ain't black enough. And so one of the things she told Coretta Scott King was that she didn't feel accepted enough in the Black community to represent the Black community. And I was like, ain't that something? She's a refugee from terrorism of white supremacy. She's doing her best. She becomes the most 
famous black woman in the world and she doesn't feel black enough. That's cruel, Vanessa. That's cruel. And we perpetuate that sometimes. Yes. This is embarrassing. In college, one of the guys who lived across the hall from me, there was a girl who used to do like this outdoor adventure stuff. And she's had these little khaki shorts on and she rode in this little go-kart. And every time she rode by, he'd be like, there go slaves. And everybody would be cracking up. And I would just be like, this is so ignorant. This is so ignorant how cruel we are to each other when we try new things. It's fear. It's yeah, fear. And, and it's people projecting their fear onto you. And that yes. is where we are going to have to pray up around discernment and to even recognize that you don't need to pick up all the feedback people are putting down, first of all. And you have to actually understand and own even your own power to be able to see that it's other people's weakness and them trying to even bring you down in that space. So it's yeah. not something that's automatic, though, because it's a culture. It's a culture that teaches it us is. that. And that culture is based in religion. It's based in the church. It's based in the politics of our communities. It's also based But it's in, also and based is, in scarcity. I do believe that there is a role for cultural gatekeeping. I do believe that there is a canon of blackness and that we can talk about do this, do that, do that, whatever. But if that canon of blackness don't include me, who is a black woman who comes to black women, then the canon is wrong and scarce. When you said there's a place for cultural <laughs> gatekeeping, all I can think is the time I brought the Starbucks to my eye church. Y'all can tell me <laughs> that I was not... Wait, slow wrong. down, slow down, slow down. No, slow down and tell this story. Vanessa brought a Starbucks cup into a Church of God in Christ actual Sunday morning service. <laughs> Y'all couldn't tell me I was a grown, that I was just like, I'm sophisticated. I run a business. I'm home now for the holidays. I'm stepping in here. I got my Starbucks double caramel macchiato. About to get this word sitting up on these refuse. And I'm going to just let you know, Aunt Peggy was like, I don't care how old you are. I don't care what type of attitude you got about anything. This Starbucks ain't coming up here. I am also a fan of cultural games. Yes. Morgan. <laughs> yes. Yes. Let me leave us with this final thought. And my friend is going to kill me, so I'm not saying no names. I was talking to a random friend, no name. And she was sharing this story with me that she looked on her phone and in the deleted pictures of her phone was some pictures of some booties. <laughs> and she was like, what? Mind you. She got two little girls. So her heart starts racing and she's like, what is this? Right. So she calls them in the room, you know, in the stern black mama voice. And she was like, what is this? And the youngest girl was like, that's my hiney. (laughs) Why is it on my phone? And you knew it was wrong. That's why you deleted it. Right. And she went into the stuff and she was like, well, my other sister took it. And that made her relax a little bit because, you know, we got to protect our girls. And she was like, go get her. And so she's in a moment now of figuring out how to handle this, Vanessa. And she goes, why did you do this? And she said, because I wanted to see where to poop. And she's like, why did you do this? So she said she had to gather herself. She said, get somewhere, right? So the girls went and acted like they were asleep, she said. (laughs) She came back. She ended up calling somebody in for some reinforcement who was calm another woman who was calm and that woman was able to talk to the little girls and be like, well, if you need to ask questions and this and this and this and this. And I was proud of her because I was like, that was a moment where you can make 
your baby girls ashamed of their bodies or scared or feel like some kind of, you know what I mean? I was talking to a member of our staff and I was like, when did you learn how to fully own your body, fully inhabit your body? And she was like, that language is even throwing me off, own my body. And I was like, how? So we ended up putting, who taught you how to love your body? Because that felt easier to even understand. But I actually wanted to talk about owning our bodies through and through. Like I exhale and my belly falls over my jeans because I like it. Right? Really owning your curves yeah. and your body and your pleasure and your rhythm and your laughter. I just want everybody out there to really think about A, how they learned to own and inhabit and love their bodies and how they're teaching the girls in their lives to do that. And what yeah. that even means and how we layer shame on. And I want us to start to think about it. I don't even want to begin to think that I have the answers because listen, I didn't even put, what do you call the song? Cardi B song? Is it walk? I didn't even put it on the because I was just scared I was going to get in trouble. There's so much shame. And I'm so proud to be the daughter of Josephine Baker, who stood on that stage as a refugee of white terrorism and said, I am beautiful. I'm going to reclaim my Africanness. I am going to laugh with them. I am going to mesmerize them. And I am going to claim my spot at the top. And when I do, I'm going to go back and save my nation. Like no small death. You know, that was like her mission. So I'm deeply, deeply grateful to learn this story, y'all. We'd love to hear what you all think about Josephine Baker, any of the questions using hashtag Black History Bootcamp. Y'all, come back for day three tomorrow. It's going to be amazing. And we are going to leave with the one and only Meg Thee Stallion. Featuring Beyonce. Go ahead and practice being liberated in your body, y'all. Be blessed, everyone. See you tomorrow. No smoke with me. Okay. Then turn this motherfucker up 800 degree. Whole team eat. Chefs cause she's a treat. Ooh, she's so bougie, bougie. Don't ever teach. I'm a savage. Had a tooth nasty. Talk big shit, but my bank account match it. Hood, but I'm classy. Rich, but I'm ratchet. Haters kept my name in their mouth, not a gagging. Bougie. He say the way that thing move is a movie. I told that boy we gotta keep it lowly, me the room key. How done bled the block and now it's hot, bitch, I'm Tunji. I'm mood and I'm moody. I'm a savage. Classy, bougie, ratchet. Sassy, moody, nasty. Acting stupid, what was happening? What was happening? Bitch, I'm a savage. Classy, bougie, ratchet. Sassy, moody.